Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Yes, Solidarity forget Forever. This is Annie uh, with you this morning on a Saturday. It's still dark outside. <laughs> We've had unseasonally hot weather in Melbourne throughout March uh, and it's going to continue to be hot. So make sure you're hydrated and uh, you're under the shade. Don't get too burnt, that sort of thing, because uh, that's the thing that will bring you down. Solidarity Breakfast on uh, 3CR Every Saturday morning, 7.30 to 9, we bring you some politics with your Wheaties. Today we're going to uh, say uh, Vale uh, Trevor Grant. We've got a short piece from Trevor's uh, book launch in 2014, Sri Lanka's Secrets, how the Rajapatsa, Rajapatsa, is it Paksa? Paxa regime gets away with murder. That's the name of the book, and it's uh, published by Monash University Press Publishing. Uh, uh, the short interview with Trevor to remind you of his voice and his uh, wonderful character. There's going to be a uh, um, a memorial, a second memorial for Trevor today. This time, it's going to be at the Trades Hall. Victoria Trades Hall at uh, the corner of Ligon Street and Victoria Parade at one o'clock. So uh, if uh, you want to share condolences, that's a good place to be later in the day. Uh, we're going to go on and uh, this is a special request for Sue Lee. G'day Sue out there. Uh, I went down to uh, feminist, Feminism in the Pub. This was part of the Raw work, uh, Women's Rights in uh, at work conference uh, that was on last week and uh, there was some uh, great panel and there were great people. Uh, it was down at the Oxford Scholar Ho- Hotel across the road from RMIT, good little pub because they arranged to allow people to be there. It's actually got disabled access and uh, they shared their space with a load of feminists. So if you're in town and you want a, a beer, it's a good place to go. The panel was Celeste Little, uh, Jack's, Jack, Jackie Brown, uh, Alicia Mullane and Adele Madolo. So I've got a, some excerpts from that particular event. It was uh, very interesting, actually. It was a nice camaraderie sort of event in the middle of Raw. Uh, after that, we're going to... Uh, I can't resist. I have to... Uh, give you a little bit more of the rallies that happened, the speeches that happened at the Melbourne rally at uh, on, Mon- on March the 9th, the Enough's Enough rallies. I hope you haven't... Uh, they're only short, but uh, 
the their picks, their fantastic picks. Uh, Paddy Crumlin's speech was just a, a cracker, and uh, I also thought I'd uh, let you into the uh, speech given by Lisa Chester, who's actually the member for Bendigo, uh, Labor member for Bendigo, and uh, she, it was quite a fascinating speech, uh, and uh, it was interesting that there should have been a Labor member asked to speak at that particular rally. A nice piece. Uh, later on, of course, this is the week that was, and uh, we're going to have a chat with Noah Pazil. How wonderful for us. Unemployed, underemployed, receiving Social Security, getting bullied, penalised or harassed by your job agent or Centrelink. The Australian Unemployed Workers Union is for you. You have rights. Find out more or get involved by going to our website on unemployedworkersunion.com or by calling our National Advocacy Hotline on 03 83 It's time to fight back. A 3CR supporter. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your right. Yeah, that's right. It is. It's the season for standing up and fighting back. And you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie on 3CR 855 on your AM dial. But of course, we're streaming. We're online. We're we're with it. We're happening. And like I said, we were go- we're going to go back. We're going to go back to 2014 to a chat I had at the launch of uh, Trevor Graham's Oh, sorry, Trevor Grant's Sri Lankan Secrets, How the Rajapaksa Regime Gets Away with Murder. As I said, it's published by Monash University Publishing and it's great to hear Trevor's voice again. It all started with a Tamil asylum seeker who I was trying to help start up a gardening business and he alerted me to the whole Tamil question. And then another asylum seeker came along. Um, he'd come off a boat at the Cocos Islands and he had a little memory card of photos he'd taken in, um, at the end of the war and the, and the tragedy that happened there. And, you know, uh, he was amongst it all and he'd been tortured five times and um, he told me the graphic details of his torture and I was stunned and I just started as a journalist to uh, inquire and gather facts and... I started to write it um, in a different way, uh, really in a, in, in a small way. I just wanted to get a, something out there to tell people this, this story and then it just grew and Monash University contacted me and said, well, we're very interested in, in the subject and you know, suddenly <laughs> you know, we've got a, a, a pretty major publication, which I'm pretty proud of. Mm. Uh, what was it like uh, actually writing a book compared to your generally... Uh, generally you write uh, articles. Yeah. Well, over the years I've, I've written a, a lot of uh, feature, long feature articles, so I understand the process of research. In, but to do something like this was totally different to anything I'd ever done. And the hardest thing for me was sitting down with asylum seekers and listening to their stories over, over a number of hours you know, I, I sat at 3CR a lot with these people in, in uh, back rooms and interviewed them and they told me their horrific tales and, and in graphic detail and, and I felt, I mean, I had no right to feel exhausted but I did, you know, after listening to this, you know, I watched these people and I felt, you know, so much empathy and, and, and concern and wanted to do something and, 
Um, so th- there it is. And, the, and the, the writing process is probably the easiest thing in many ways. It's getting the, getting the facts, and this is, this is chasing facts, and that's what I love doing as a journalist. Editing? Who edited it for you? Um, there wasn't much editing. I mean, Monash University, I, I developed the concept of, of the way the book's laid out with um, different sections. Uh, I wanted to make sure that because we wanted to update it, because what happened five years, uh, what happened um, at the end of the war was five years ago, so I was very conscious of um, what has happened since, and I think it's an integral part of the book and an integral part of the story of Tamil. Of, of, of the Tamil genocide and Tamil persecution is Australia's links in all of this, Australia's complicity in in the Tamil genocide, and um, you know Australians don't. It's a low awareness issue. Australians don't really understand um, much about it, and so that was an important thing to have at the front of the book was Australia's shocking complicity, both Labor and, and uh, coalition governments. And, you know, we now have a, we have a Prime Minister who, on this issue, has uh, done two unprecedented things. One is he has um, condoned torture um, in Sri Lanka, officially, on, on stage. And the other thing he's done is he's taken Australia into new territory, and that is they refused to co-sponsor a UN resolution into war crimes back in March, which has now been passed. Australia voted with China and Russia to try and stop it. One of the um, big strengths you have is personalising this shameful situation. Uh, Is that a, a strength of your book? I think that is, and I, I think the most important way of creating awareness is to try or try to explain to people the personal circumstances. of. I do that with the refugee radio program. I try very much to explain uh, these, uh, these stories about refugees, what, what they've gone through, because we're fighting in a massive way a monster that's trying to dehumanise these people. Every day there's something new from Scott Morrison who's pummeling his chest in Parliament like Tarzan to sort of say, look, I stopped the boats. Um, the, the cruelty and inhumanity that he delivers on these people is it's, it's just quite amazing that, um, uh, you know, every day you wake up and you say to yourself, God... You know, he's doing this. How can I? How can I stop this? How can, how can we? How can we bring this to the attention of the people? And that, the only way to do that, I think, is to humanise um, the asylum seekers because the government's trying to dehumanise them. So telling their stories is a really, really critical part, and that's what I've tried to do in the book as well. Hi, I'm Stuart. Hi, I'm Marita. We are the Orb Weavers, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital radio. And streaming at 3cr.org.au. Yeah, that was uh, us listening to Trevor Grant's wonderful voice and his fantastic contribution. He is just a great person. Uh, he did extraordinary things at 3CR for 
uh, refugee message out there to people, uh, tailoring it to the general understanding of uh, the issue. Uh, A very big loss, but it was a great thing to have met Trevor Grant. If uh, you want to, you can be part of the memorial for Trevor at Trades Hall at 1pm today. We're uh, moving on now to uh, Feminism in the Pub. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. It's uh, dark outside, so you're probably either wandering around in your house thinking, oh, I'm going to have a nice cup of tea. So uh, it's maybe a little bit rowdy. The uh, pub was a little bit rowdy, but people were very happy. So we're going to start off with uh, the chant that uh, was put out. I'll remind you that the uh, panel that we're listening to, uh, Celeste Liddell, uh, who's a feminist, unionist, proud Arunti woman, Jack's Jackie Brown, who's a disability and queer rights activist, Alicia Mullane, who's a mum for refugees, and Adele Murdolo, Executive Director, Multicultural Centre for Women's Health, but primarily feminists in the pub. Lesbian women who were from migrant and refugee backgrounds, 
And we, again, we wanted to get the message across that things weren't the same for us. We didn't experience our sexuality in the same way that uh, other women did. And I guess the reason I want to point to these two events is because um, this has been a thread that's gone through my feminist activism that has been really important. That's been about identifying that universalising tendency that there, that, is, that there is in feminism, um, at where women who are normally placed at the centre of feminism, which are Anglo-white feminists, um, and that universal tendency, which is to say that to other women, who aren't in that centre, uh, in that thinking, to say that your experience is like mine, that there is a women's experience and that your experience is like mine. Um, but what we hear a lot less of is that my experience is like yours. And I guess that's where I'm trying to, to get to, where we understand that actually our experiences are all different um, and that this is significant, that we need to shift that focus on the centre, we need to shift which women are at the centre of our feminism so that we can reorient um, where we're heading with it. Um, and I'm hoping everyone can hear me because I've learned how to use a mic over the years. Um, Pinpointing what my feminist action was was really, really difficult. I think that being raped from a very, very young age as an Aboriginal person in this country was tough enough, but also compounded by the fact that I was an Aboriginal girl within society and there were certain expectations. Oi, can the patriarchy at the back keep it down? <laughs> Being, being read in those two ways simultaneously from the time that I first started interacting with other people in society through primary school, preschool, whatever else, was, was a constant reminder of how I was different to other people. So I think my first actively feminist um, action was probably when I was 11 and after, um, after years of being told that my place was to be, well, you know, hearing all the jokes about what's an ABC and all that sort of shit and also also being told that my place in society was to be refined and to be attractive and, and to dress certain ways and to not get dirty. When I was 11, I quit my seven years of classical ballet training, <laughs> cut my hair into a mullet, <laughs> And, and then just started going with that. So there was this weird, um, there was this weird sort of, oh my God, it was 89, so it was such a mullet. <laughs> but there was this weird sort of thing about why would a young girl who's placed within society, why would she actively try and make herself ugly and confrontational at that age? And it was because my entire life I'd been read in certain ways and being told that I was supposed to act in certain ways, that my natural instinct was to start rebelling against it. So mum realised that she wasn't going to get me into pink dresses, she wasn't going to be able to, to mould me in the way that um, others had. 
you know, the fact that I was Aboriginal was no longer becoming a po point of shame. I was actively starting to claim it, and I was surrounded by Aboriginal activists in Canberra, which, which fueled that. I think when I was about 14, my mum bought me my first feminist book, which was yet another publication called The F Word. And can we please stop calling feminist things the F Word? Um, but from there, when I was about 16, they had an open mic at my high school and I got up and gave a bit of a rant about feminism and why we should all be ditching our razors and growing our armpit hairs long. I think that my politics at that stage probably needed some development, but my entire life has kind of been revolving, sorry, has kind of revolved against rebelling against the systems that as an Aboriginal girl I found myself placed in. And so when I hit uni, my world just exploded. I was surrounded by thinkers, I was surrounded by people who could help me shape those ideas and I was called opinionated often and I just ran with it. different but this thing to Celeste it kind of sparked a memory in me. Um, I guess my, my first feminist action was when I was 14 and I finally said to my mother and the medical professionals get your hands off my body my body is mine and I no longer want to aspire to get fixed anymore or try and be um, as normal as I possibly can whatever that is. Um, I started to think how can I call this body home? How can I feel proud to be who I am? How can my body start to belong to me and not belong to somebody else out there? Um, so I said, um, yeah, stop doing these daily interventions on my body. I no longer want to be at the mercy of um, the medical profession and normalization. I want to work out how to feel at home in my skin. Um, and then when I was 19, I was involved in the women's collective at uni. I wasn't actually at uni yet. I was at TAFE, but I wanted to find some feminists, so I went along to the local university. And um, we organised NOWSA, which is the Network of Women Students Australia Conference. It happens annually. Um, and so we had it in the, our regional country town of Lismore, which is um, in the northern rivers of New South Wales, near Byron Bay. Um, and so I went to a lot of different collective meetings and we had lots of debates about how much hummus to buy and that kind of thing. Um, and I learned about collective organising. Um, and it was a great thing. And we, we organised to have a woman with a disability come up from a um, disability organisation and speak about the intersections of disability and, and gender. Um, and I remember she flew up and um, gave a keynote speech and it was really the first time but I'd heard anyone ever talk about how living in a non-normative body interacts with um, notions of gender and complicates that. Um, and I remember very clearly being overwhelmed by thinking about those inter intersectional issues that I'd never really grappled with before, um, but also really fired up about the injustice and how I could start to change it. So yeah. Yeah, we're down at the pub. We were down at uh, the uh, Oxford, Oxford Scholar. It was uh, last week, and it's Feminism in the Pub, part of RAW, the uh, festival about women's rights at work. 
And uh, that was the first question that they asked the panel, the panel, uh, Celeste Liddell, who's a proud Oranti woman, feminist, unionist, Jacks, Jacks, Jackie Brown, who's a disability and queer rights activist, Alicia Mullane, mums for refugees, and Adele Modillo, who's uh, the executive director of Multicultural Centre for Women's Health. Anyways, that that's a long mouthful, isn't it? You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and you know I'm practicing learning how to speak on a Saturday morning, very early in the in the morning. But anyway, by the by, I'm managing. I'm managing. The second question was about the the pivotal question of feminism: Should feminism, modern feminism, be militant, or rather, more militant? With the rise of popular or mainstream feminism what some might call op-ed feminism. Some feminists argue that feminist activism has lost its militancy and become individualistic. Does feminist activism need to get more militant? And if so, what would this look like? What do we mean when we say activist? I'm going to open it up for a volunteer to take this one first. Celeste. I think we need to be blatantly honest when it comes to my career as a commentator and all of that. Um, If it wasn't for the internet and if it wasn't for the use of social media, probably nobody would have heard of me at this point in time. So the, the the fact that, well, not just feminists, but Aboriginal people were out, were able to access a space that wasn't wasn't controlled by the white media dudes at the top for the first time, you know, ever when the internet opened up. That um, was is the reason why people like I started blogs, why people like I were able to network across the entire country, and that was the first thing that I found with. Um, particularly the Aboriginal community. I mean, feminists use the internet a hell of a lot to network, right? Yeah? Aboriginal people use the internet and things like Facebook at a rate 20% higher than everyone else because the fact that we can go from community to community, share those stories and mobilise online, was incredibly important from a media, you know, to counteract a media that has only ever elevated the voices of those who most fit the status quo. So Indigenous commentators tended to be, before before all this happened, tended to be the ones that could most parrot what the white establishment actually had to offer and the white male establishment, so male Aboriginal voices who were conservative, were the biggest beneficiaries of that. The internet's allowed us to break that shit down. Um, it, it, does mean, it does mean that there is a little bit of individualism that goes in it. People become figureheads. There does seem to be rallying around other points. But, um, but my blog existed for exactly six weeks before an article that I wrote on it was republished by a media source. So another feminist saw my work and decided that she was going to run it. And I haven't been... I haven't stopped writing since. I get only commissions nowadays. Um, 
there does seem we we are in pretty neoliberal times. We are in times where people identify with individuals as opposed to a movement, and I think that's where our challenge lies. So taking these points that these individuals make and pulling them back into a movement, so that we're mobilising, we're out on the street, we're challenging them, and we're actually sharing these dialogues and sharing them in truly collaborative ways, so that we can act so that we can then go and challenge the systems that we're being oppressed by is the most important message to take away from it. So rather than thinking of various commentators as figureheads, I think what I prefer to what what I prefer people to take away is that various commentators serve a purpose of actually opening up a discussion that never existed before when our only recourse was through letters to the editor which I was pretty infamous with, and they were usually about Andrew Bolt, and they were edited to the shit. Um, but, you know, it's about the fact that these conversations are able to happen now, that they're able to happen in a space that is not being controlled, or not as controlled as what it was before, and therefore use that knowledge, use that sort of exchange to expand the ideas, to come together, to mobilise and to get out there and start shaking stuff up. So that's what I take away from it. Um, I, I mean, I pretty much just want to say everything what Celeste was saying, but you know, it's about using those platforms to our advantage. So Mums for Refugees, we've got an amazing network of private Facebook groups and we organise it on so many different levels with so many with mums who've got amazing um, experiences in their life and they take those experiences and they apply that to the activism work that we do. Um, it's about, you know, for us it's about getting out of that bubble of the internet as well, though, and making sure that we, you know, find opportunities to intervene in the debate. Um, you know, so getting out there with our prams, going to MPs offices, getting out in the public spaces, having dialogues with people in our school communities, in our um, working communities, all of those places and, and, and just, you know, being, um, using our, I guess, um, authentic voices mums to say we're not we're not having this in our name and um, you know just just being there and having a presence having a having a voice and making it accessible because um, once you have kids uh, activism becomes strangely unaccessible there's rallies at night you know tomorrow night we'd love to go to the international Wednesday march but we're all going to be at home getting dinner ready for the kids and getting them off to bed and all the rest of it ready for school the next day um, there's, you know, we all have to, you know, you have a breakfast, um, breakfast discussion about feminism. We can't go, we're taking the kids to school. So it's about, for us, finding, finding ways to reclaim the activist space and, um, you know, looking at, looking at ways of stepping our, you know, people in our group up. They're, you know, often they've come to it, they're just angry about something and they wanted to find an outlet. So for us, it's about finding small, easy ways for people to feel comfortable to move, to move into the movement and move from just being a helper, someone who donates stuff to refugees, but moving actually to an advocate and to, a, you know, to campaigning in that space. I agree with what I 
co-panel members have said, I guess one thing that I'd like to add is that um, sometimes when we look at what kind of successes we're having as feminists, that sometimes we can mistake seeing individual women doing well in certain things for success. And um, sometimes that, that's a mistake because it can be great to see women succeed, but that's not necessarily um, changing structures or it's not actually making creating change for the vast majority of women and I guess that's where I see feminism as, as having its greatest um, impact. Um, do I think that disability feminism should become more militant? I would say yes. Um, and I would say that for a number of reasons. Because people don't expect people with disabilities to be troublemakers, to be doing anything that isn't nice and polite and pliable, to demanding our rights. I mean, I think one of the great things about having this body is that police and the powers that be get so uncomfortable if you do anything different to what you're expected to do in it. Um, so if I jump out of my chair and blockade something, how the hell are they going to know what to do with me? I mean, can I even get into their police station if they manage to arrest me? Um, so what kind of powers do my, does my body hold? Because my body is is um, is like this. Um, so I would, I would say, yes, we do need to get more militant. We also need to get more active um, in the real world. We need to find spaces where if we have the energy and the time and if we can actually get to places because there's so many barriers for people with disabilities in accessing daily life, we need to have spaces where we can meet up and have conversations as well as having the great conversations that we have online. And I would echo what Celeste said um, with regard to um, the disability community, the internet's been a great space for really mobilising us and giving us platforms to articulate what disability rights is and what kind of changes that we need to see in the world to have it be more um, inclusive. Um, and I'm just looking at the final question of that question, which is, what do we mean when we say activist? So to me, um, I write activists in bios all the time, that I'm an activist, I'm not an advocate, I'm an activist. And I do that really deliberately because for me, activist means taking action. It means being on the edges and screaming at the centre. It doesn't mean being an advocate and going to some nice little meetings and asking quietly for change. It means, it means being on the margins and being proud to be on the margins and trying to drag the centre to where we hope they would be in terms of change. Um, so activism is a really, really powerful term for me and a really political term and one that I so often get removed from my bios when people introduce me because it makes people feel uncomfortable because it's too radical because of course I couldn't mean that I'm an activist. I must mean that I'm a nice, polite advocate asking quietly for some kind of concessions. Sorry, I grabbed the microphone back because I had one my trigger moment. So for me, for, for, for me, the whole idea that feminism needs to be palatable is an ongoing issue. Every single panel that I'm on, it's just sort of, how do we make feminism more appealing to other people? And, and my answer to that is, 
Well, it's a social justice movement. So the problem with feminism is that it is always going to be unappealing. It is always going to challenge the very structures that we're oppressed by, and that's why we need to keep it going. So, so our real question here, I think, of course, it needs to be more militant, but our real question here is how we challenge those structures and we be inclusive of those structures in order to overthrow as many of them as possible so that the women who are most vulnerable to the structures through intersectionality end up benefiting at the end of the day. Because if we're only... If we're only challenging the structures that the most privileged women in society, you know, face, then we're, then we're not actually achieving anything as a movement. But feminism is never going to be popular. And the day that it's going to be popular is the day that I'm just sort of, oh, I'm not like this. That's not why I'm a feminist. I'm a feminist because there's injustice and we need to fight injustice. Indigenous rights activist, I've never ever been asked how we make Indigenous rights more palatable to white people. <laughs> I, I've never been asked how we sex up Indigenous rights. It is kind of assumed that by the fact that we're sovereignty activists and we're going and occupying space and saying this is invasion day and we want we want some sort of an agreement on this land that we are confrontational people, which, you know, whatever, I'm okay with that. Yeah, that feminism is frequently packaged in this way where it needs to be sold to people. It's like, it's like feminism has all of a sudden become this... I don't know, I mean, we're seeing great big signs with people strutting amongst them. We're seeing T-shirts. It's a marketable commodity now at this point in time rather than a social justice movement, and that concerns me because how much of the, how much of the meaning of a social justice movement gets removed when we're talking about how we make it more appealing? How much do we lose from that? So... You know, I, I, I don't get asked that with Indigenous rights. I think that it's a real concern that it's constantly, you know, how we can be least offensive as feminists in order to make make feminism something that people buy into. The whole, the whole, the whole idea that it's something that should be marketed rather than something that should be taken up, arms, let's go, is, is concerning to me. Um, <laughs> And you're on 3CR with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. And I'm joined in here in the studio by Anne Learmont from the Affair Go for Pensioners. How are you, Anne? I'm good this morning. Yeah, you've come all the way from Northcote. It was a hot, it was dark outside. It was very dark. I don't often have to get up this early and it always shocks me when it's really dark outside. I don't expect it. You've just uh, finished doing the submission for the uh, Fair Rights for, uh, uh, Fair Go for Pensioners submission to the inquiry into the Centrelink debacle, haven't you? Yes, I have. I uh, sent it off to the rest of the committee to, Check it out and see that it makes sense. So and what's it'll the go direction? What are you saying it's, in your submission? Well, I guess we're saying two things. A, that 
the whole process was was bungled, which is very clear, and um, based on our collective experience of how to manage things like that, um, and we may be old, but we do have that experience. Uh, it was badly thought out from the first. Um, it seemed to be much more of an ego trip of, look, we can do this, manage big data and grab back. And they talking about grabbing back lots of money from lots of people. But the system was flawed for a start. I don't, I haven't found any evidence of any real testing. They didn't involve the ATU, ATO, which uh, supplies part of the data for the data matching project that started all this off for any advice or consult them about things. There are well-known problems about matching data from two different sources, collective in two different ways. They didn't seem to do any trial checking um, the the robot-assisted system with the human-based system, which which had been working for a while and working quite well, but because it involved a human intervention in the process, checking for errors, making sure that things went to the right address. None of that happened with the robot system, apparently. We don't know because the information's not out there and because the government, every time anybody asks, keeps saying, no, it's working perfectly. It's clawing back lots of money. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because uh, you say that nobody is allowed to actually see the processes of what the government's doing, which is... uh, outrageous in itself but then uh the uh minister drudge or tudge tudge drudge tudge (laughs) gives private information of Um, uh, against a person who's been blogging against this system yeah that's another appalling thing and we we know of one case because it's been well published by the publicized by the minister but we don't know how many others and we suspect that there might be lots more um but what we do know is that so much of the information was wrong. So we've done a, an unusual thing in our submission. We've actually framed a lot of questions, what we would like to know, and asked the inquiry to ask those questions and find that information because the whole process seems to have been flawed. Um, uh, did you know that uh, they, they hire private debt collectors on commission? Absolutely, absolutely. That's one of our concerns. Revealing people's private information is another. The whole design of the process, the fact that nobody apparently um, ever checked that all the addresses were right. I mean, we suggested this. It's a fairly simple process you can do. We've had a re- an election quite recently. Why don't? Why wasn't? Or was it? But, or no, but nobody noticed. Why wasn't it checked against poll data so they knew they were sending letters to the right people? It leads people. one to believe that they're not actually serious, uh, that they're not competent, they're not serious, and that they have an, a misunderstanding of what government actually is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, whole, the other issue that was very clear in the letter is that it put all the onus on the... Um, uh, the recipient of the letter to prove that their assertion that they, the government owe, they owed the government in some cases a lot of money was true is absolutely contrary to our normal law system, which says you're innocent until proven guilty, and it's the it's the onus is on the government or the authority to prove 
the case, not on the victim. They're like a dictatorship because they're in their mindset because actually they're suppo- we're supposed to all be part of a community called Australia yeah. that uh, rather than uh, a group of people that are beholden to a dictor- dictator dictatorship, basically. Yeah, absolutely. And this, this um, obsession about secrecy um, for the things the government doesn't want to know is bodes really badly, doesn't it? It's it's very worrying, and I think, um, and and my one of my concerns, and the reason why we were making a banner yesterday with the unemployed workers union, whose members are very tied up in this, um, is to go and support the the actual workers, the Centrelink workers, who have been instructed very with. In a very threatening way, with um, you know, disciplinary action, whatever that might be, uh, if they actually engage with people who come into the office seeking help or advice or information about why they've got this letter about a, a debt that they don't believe they owe or that they could prove they don't owe, they're, they're told to pass the the person straight on to either the computer system or the phone system, both of which get so overloaded that they break down frequently. And in spite, it's quite criminal this uh, behaviour. Well, it's quite I, criminal. I think it. Well, I think it is. Yeah. Um, you were saying you were talking to a couple of chaps who were helping with the banner. Yes, o- older older men who are past, I guess. Don't think they'd mind me saying this. The age of being employable. I mean, we we know from a lot of evidence about, for example, the recent Victorian um, You're inqu- talking about in- paid employment aren't inquiry you? into yes, into um, uh, insecure work. That it's very hard for anybody if they lose their job, whether they get fired, whether they resign whether they or get sick, lit, yeah, they get sick or off. their job just disappears out from underneath them, the organisation goes bankrupt or whatever, um, decides to offshore everything. If, you, if you're over 45 when that happens, is you're very unlikely to be a very long time on New Start um, before you get another job because you're basically ridic- unemployable. These ridiculous names, New Start, Fair uh, Work Commission, you know, all these, it's absolutely. very Orwellian, isn't it? Yes, you have to laugh about it or else you'd cry, I think. But um, but anyway, what were they but, saying? But, that, but they were talking about their experience of dealing, and these are, these are intelligent, well-educated, experienced workers I didn't even find out what fields, but who, who have long experience in working in in a workplace that they could cope with adequately, finding it almost impossible to negotiate the the um, the problems of unemployment, um, because most from what we hear, what we gather from various sources, most of the claims are formed on a basis of confusion about when people were working it for how much. Sometimes it's it's apparently as little as a mis a misspelling of the employer's name. Um, I heard Meyer and Myers um, reported on radio recently uh, where the tax office had one name for the employer 
only a, only a letter, letter different. And the Centrelink had another name and the the yeah, because the, the com- robot brain took yeah. this as two different yeah, employers yeah. and two lots of money. Yeah, because computers don't uh, aren't nuanced. No, exactly. But in, interestingly enough, computers are uh, are uh, uh, their their output is ex- more acceptable than human mm. output. It's getting to that stage, and that's a real worry. I, I actually worked with computers way back in the sixties when Australia acquired the largest and most powerful computer in Australia, about as a powerful as a low as a low cost laptop at the moment. But but back then, we had a one part of the organisation coding the, the the computer, and another part of the organisation doing the same. Um, mathematical processes, checking that the coding was actually produced. And that took us a long time. Things have speeded up since then. But there's no evidence that I've been able to find well, you can't that any sort of process did that. Yeah. You just believe, you throw all this data at the computer, somebody writes the coding. But also it's the intention. That's yeah. the thing. It's, it's the intention of the uh, government to use a system that's untried, untested uh, because it's a, a, a um, because they're 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 apparatchiks of the corporate yeah. state. Yeah. That's what and they they're are. Not pre- they're not prepared to claw back money that large corporations haven't haven't. I um, don't think that's paid. Easy. But you know, the amount of money that they're talking about is too small. For uh, it's not going to revivify the uh, Australian economy. Not. That's not what it's for. It's it's actually to crush the the community. Yes, I, yeah, I think you're right. I think that, but what they don't seem to understand is that that process is is totally unproductive. I mean, the all the all the talk is about um, you know being agile. Um, boosting employment, boosting weight, doing everything. But every the actions are whether they be about this whole robo robo de- debacle, or whether it be about the unavailability of housing or the unavailability of real jobs that actually people can trust and then banks will trust that the person has an ongoing job and give them a loan or whatever. The whole system is is just breaking into a million fragments and it's hard to know where to start first because putting Band-Aids on bits and pieces is no longer useful. Yes, as we say... Cut the head off the serpent. That's what we advise. <laughs> I wouldn't go quite that far, but I would uh, throw the serpent away and <laughs> go back to relying on people's common sense and, by and large, goodwill. I mean, I think Centrelink have done themselves a very great disservice because it was, until fairly recently, an organisation that, and under a previous name, maybe fortunately, uh, an organisation that people trusted because they knew that it was there and if they lost their job, if they got sick, if they had young children, the support all comes through there and that that is what it was there for. And I think people are now starting to believe what they hear and what they hear is people talking about them, the community, 
owing the government money. And whether it's true or not, it's not the way Centrelink was perceived and ought to be perceived, I think. I think the government's done itself and the whole system, unfortunately. don't care if the government does itself harm, but this government, but it's done the system a great deal of harm. I mean, people... So, and you think we need to claw it back? Well, I think we need to claw back the system, yes. Yeah. Not um, stand-ups. Problem is that the problem, the system is so broken that it's really hard to know where to start. Yeah, well, we sh- uh, maybe it's about focusing on what, on what the intention is, which is to have a, a productive and uh, uh, secure yes. community. Yeah. 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 Thanks for coming in and talking to That's me. That's a pleasure. Yeah. So if anybody wants to have anything to do with their go for pensioners, how would they get in touch? Um, we have a website and a Facebook page and uh, we can be contacted. Uh, most of our members are... Um, actually organisations that care about it. started with a, a focus on the age pension and it was started by a group of retired members sections of various unions and some retired um, citizens groups of various types. Since then we've acquired um, all sorts of other groups that, that uh, support and uh, assist and advocate for people like single mothers and their children, uh, unemployed older workers and younger workers. Um, And that's why you were down at uh, the Unemployed Workers Union. That's right. So it's a good way of of networking. Yes, and so um, we don't don't, um, seek government funding or anything like that. We're totally independent and... um, and you're very, fighting... very activist. Yeah, yeah, fighting the good fight. You might well see us in the streets numerous times this year. Come along and follow the banners and join us. Unemployed? Underemployed? Receiving Social Security? Getting bullied, penalised or harassed by your job agent or Centrelink. The Australian Unemployed Workers Union is for you. You have rights. Find out more or get involved by going to our website on unemployedworkersunion.com or by calling our national advocacy hotline on 03 83 It's time to fight back. A 3CR supporter. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your right. Well, I love the Lone Ranger, and I love that Dennis Law. Him and George Best, I sure knew how to kick a ball. I wanted to be a cowboy, and learn to crack a whip. Stand up in that lonely street, to six guns on my hip. Along the mighty Beatles came, and everyone went, ah! They could play and sing and everything, and of course that John could draw. Well, that was it for me. I never once looked back. Tricks to learn and waves to catch. I had a plan of attack. 
Nepal. Then we headed south where the surf can crash and then from black and white to colour, from innocence to sin. It was summer in December, blowing heat waves in my mind. People talking funny, some cruel and some were kind. From the crackle of the cane to the frown of a big black snake. From the breakers at Bondi and down to Wallaga Lake. From the sound of a million fly screen doors closing on the past. Like that chimney the fires couldn't burn. I was built to last.
the rational caring business class lot in Canberra denounced this vehemently, angrily, as exposing socialism. The profligate socialist government was using taxpayers' money. It exuded shock to pay for the government's big, big mistakes like thinking climate change might be climate change on top of which South Trubaluazi had jumped the gun, not waiting for the result of the caring business class inquiry into energy problems. We must wait for that report. Then the very next day, the rational caring business class lot in Canberra announced a multi-billion plan to guarantee ongoing reliability and praised themselves for a sensible use of taxpayers' money to ensure the efficient privatised big energy companies could show how efficient they were when handed the public purse. And obviously they didn't have to wait for the inquiry report because they didn't have to wait for the inquiry report. And the big energy companies kept pointing out they had to export all our gas because they had to export all our gas. And it wasn't their fault. It was the irrational socialist government's fault for not letting them get at more gas because the gas they can't get at is the gas marked for domestic use. And one of those great and revered energy giants, AG Hell to Consumers, is now investigating building a multi-billion floating terminal, this is true, to import gas to meet the domestic shortage. So it's basic common sense. True Blue Aussie, one of the biggest exporters of liquefied natural gas in the world, may import gas for its domestic market. So clearly we must declare... Is capitalism rational or is capitalism rational? One of the most rational of capitalism's rational exponents, US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor, who does a bit of presidencing between big, big deals, has surrounded himself with equally rational acolytes, or sorry, spokespeople. Although, to be fair to them, they must have great trouble keeping up with the half-hourly policy zigzags. Like one giant mind spin doctor asked about Donald describing ex-big supremo Barack for change, 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 as a bad guy, evil guy, evil dude said people asking such questions were disparaging the President of the United States by criticising Donald, and no one's allowed to disparage the President of the US of. So at least we know bad guy, evil guy, evil dude is not disparaging. And she also said the evil guys the CIA, I think, so we'd have, probably have to agree. Evil guys had turned Donald's microwave into a state-of-the-art spy network. So in this case, thanks Julian Assange, thanks WikiLeaks for giving them an explanation, even though they still want to hit him with a lethal needle. And if the CIA's involved, it'd be easy to do it without anything as time-wasting as a fair trial, explaining quite logically, there's no way he'd get a fair trial, so why wait time. But in the case of the spy network, microwave, the proof will be in the pudding. Well, in what Donald ate, if the CIA releases details of what leftovers Donald reheated. On Giant Minds back here, mentioned last week that one notion person, that appalling Hoonsun, like Donald, leaves her deep-thinking supporters feeling giddy keeping up with what the hell is our policy today, or even this morning, or this afternoon, or this half hour.
I raise this because we also mentioned last week that appalling had screeched the caring business class party preference deal which proved so glittering a success was not a deal, it was to shore up our support. And as we said it, Shaw pissed it off. But then since the election, Western true blue Aussie electing a government intent on destroying capitalism, she has blamed the very deal she said last week wasn't a deal. But deal or no deal, it wasn't her fault. It was the caring business class party's fault that people didn't vote for no halal. And the new socialist government had lied and was dishonest for not giving her its preferences. But then we have to admit, logic is not one of that appalling long suits. Still, she also said getting no votes was a great result, showing that at least she's easily pleased. Not pleased, the Minister for Sounding Important, Christopher Payne in the not just because he was hamstrung by the tubes attached to his sundry parts as he burped and farted himself stupid, but because the new secretary of the evil ACTU, Sally McManus, had said there were times when unions had a responsibility to break bad laws. This is the sort of anarchic Marxist claptrap we had on campus in the 70s. Poor Christopher was righteously petulant. Respect for the law is the foundation of a civilised society. Uh, so if you and Malcolm and Michaelia cost the workers pass a law to make it against the law for unions to behave as unions, society would collapse if they broke that law and acted like unions? Collapse! The law is the law. There is no reason why under the law, unions cannot not behave like unions. The law allows them total freedom not to act like a union. And if the caring employers break the law? Unlike evil unions, caring employers have too much respect for the law to break the law. And anyway, the law gives them carte blanche to act like caring employers. And Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo, little Billy Shorten Ambition, also disagreed with Sally, declaring unions must obey the law, making it illegal to act like a union, and can use the democratic processes if they wish to change the law. And yeah, yeah, good point, little Billy. That's been a huge success in the annals of working class history. But Christopher and Malcolm and Michaelia must have been shattered at the disrespect for the law expressed by that federal court his honour, Tony North, in a case brought by the Smash the Union's Jackboots Commission. Well, we all recall Tony North's role in the maritime dispute, so he's obviously biased. A case in which two evil union officials dropped into a Melbourne airport building site they were passing to have a cup of tea and a chat with a mate for which jackboots supremo Nigel Hodge kissed the bosses, charged them with a number of offences, including not giving the proper notice to enter a worksite, and how's this for having no respect for the law he's supposed to uphold? His honour blasted Nigel and the con mission for wasting time and taxpayers' money taking officials to court for, quote, having a cup of tea with a mate. It was astounding, he went on. Nigel had breathed silk and held days of hearings over such a minuscule, insignificant affair. For goodness sake, I don't know what this inspectorate is doing. 
thank goodness the inspectorate and Nigel know what they're doing. They're upholding the law that must be respected, that makes it illegal for a union to be a union. And despite this Tony North person suggesting that Jack Boots and Nigel drop the case, Nigel is insisted on pursuing it, showing he, he at least has respect for the law. So finally, look, Maybe it's time we had a good hard look at the sort of people we put on the bench. We can't have maverick judges suggesting the law should use a bit of common sense. Good morning. Hello, it's Fiona Scott-Norman here, and I would just like to say congratulations. You are doing something very important right now, and you want to know what it is? You are listening to 3CR, Melbourne's most diverse and fascinating community radio station. And you know why it's important? Because diversity is important, community is important, community radio is very, very important, and you are a winner. <laughs> there you go. Uh, and I, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and nothing's happened right this morning, but it's okay. We've man- maintained our credibility by continuing to have sounds coming to you across the airwaves on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. We're, of course, streaming. And we've got plenty of things to say, so, you know, lots of fallback positions if things don't come out. Now, that announcement was Fiona Scott-Norman, and uh, there's a couple of uh, 3CR community radio benefits that are going on, and one of them does feature Fiona Scott-Norman. This is on Thursday, the 27th of April. It's at the Bella Union at Trades Hall, in a lovely little bar, with... Uh, a uh, area for events to happen. It's a it's a lovely place because it's it's reminiscent of a, a old country hall, really. Uh, Fiona Scott Norman's going to present the needle and the damage done, a joyous romp through the top ten of the worst records ever. It's going to be followed by Ian McFarlane, the Encyclopedia of Australian Rock and Pop book launch, question and answers with Michael Helms, Fatal Visions, Planet X. And uh, Super Fluidity DJs, Clem Basto, Casey Bernetto, Scott Edgar, Christos Sintokas, an unleashed free association version of their three triple R show. There you go. And MC Jonathan Alley. Under the Sun. So this is obviously a collaboration between 3CR and Triple R. There you go. And uh, there's another one, which is on Sunday the 30th of April. So two days apart or thereabouts, three days apart. Thursday the 27th at April at Trades Hall, Bella Union for the uh, Fiona Scott Norman Spectacular. And uh, uh, there's another show at the Northcote Social Club, which is at 301 High Street, Northcote, which is... Uh, going to be called the Ekranoplans Winter Sun, BJ Morrison-Zonkli. <laughs> These must be bands, I'd say. And uh, it will be fun. It will be fun. It's a matinee, doors, 1.30pm, $10 pre-sale and more on the door, if not sold out. So 3CR Community Radio Benefits, put them in your diary. Uh, as I promised, I was going to promise you a chat with Noah Pasil, but obviously he's looking after the baby. So we're going to do what I said we were going to hear. We're going to hear a couple of the speeches that were at the uh, Enough, Enough, Enough is Enough rallies. And uh, one of them, the first off, is uh, Lisa Chester. We'll listen to Lisa Chester. She's a 
because Paddy Crumlin's speech is so rousing that we can't have it first. We have to have it second. So we'll have Lisa Chester first. Now, Lisa Chester is the, she introduces, it's an introduction. She's the Labor member for Bendigo. And uh, she's a stalwart of the union uh, crowd. So uh, she was asked to come and speak at the Enough Enough uh, rally on March the 9th in Melbourne. Next up, we don't usually have politicians come speak to our rally, but Lisa Chesters isn't any other politician. She's a lifelong unionist. She's one of us. We need more people like her in Parliament. She wants to say a few words. So make Lisa very welcome. Thank you. I am so proud to stand here today with you. As Luke says, I'm a member of the Labor Party. I and the Federal Member for Bendigo and later Shadow Assistant Minister for Workplace Relations. I'm also a member of United Voice and a sister to every single union, union member and worker that is here today. You know, yesterday, as we've said, was International Women's Day and the Minister for IR, Michaela Cash, criticised Labor and the union movement for politicising International Women's Day. A little bit of a history lesson for Michaela Cash. International Women's Day started because working women in the textiles industry walked off the job, took strike actions in defence and standing up for working conditions. International Women's Day is a day about politics. It is a day about workers' rights, just like today is. They're not only hopeless, this Liberal government, they're also a bunch of cowards. Day in, day out, when we're in Canberra, they use parliamentary privilege to have a go at the CFMEU, to have a go at union officials who make sure that union members are safe on the job. Every chance they get, they hide behind parliamentary privilege to kick CFMEU and construction members any chance they get. They're not willing to stand here and do it in front of a media pack. They're not willing to do it in front of a group of construction workers, but they will hide like cowards behind parliamentary privilege. And it is just not on. Just how bad are these laws? They are union-busting laws, the ABCC. They basically say to a group of workers, because of the industry that you work in, you are denied civil rights. You are denied rights that we celebrate in a democracy. You are not treated the same as other workers. It's not on and it's not right. And it's why we stand here rallying today. Because this is a fight for every worker. If they go after construction workers, who is next? We've heard today from Little Margarita. Little Margarita who earns $30,000 a year. Yet this government thinks it's okay, these Liberals, after they champion cutting penalty rates, to cut her pay by $2,000 a year. And now they say that's okay. Let it be phased in over five years. The problem, Prime Minister and the Liberal Party, 
is Margarita has to survive then on $30,000 for another five years. What a disgrace. Margarita's pay should be increased by at least $2,000 a year, not cut by $2,000 a year. This is a government that is out of touch. This is a Liberal Party that only think about their mates in boardrooms, that only think about their mates in big business. This is a Liberal Party that will use our democracy, use our parliament, use our judicial system to go after workers whether it be the Parmalat workers, and a big shout out to the Parmalat workers who've been locked out. Whether it be our construction workers, whether it be our hospitality workers, we all stand together to say, if you're a worker in this country, you have a right to stand up. If you're a worker in this country, you have a right to speak up. If you're a worker in this country, we care about the next generation. We don't want to see companies get away with trying to terminate agreements like they are trying to do at Parmalat in Echuca. We are here to say today that this idea that you can terminate agreements, use labour hire to undercut workers' jobs and workers' conditions, go after people in our low-paid industries like Margarita, go after construction workers who stand up just to make sure that their workmates get to go home at the end of the day. We are here today to say that we are one Labor movement and we stand together united. This is a rally today, but the rallies have to keep continuing. If we're going to win this war on jobs and war on workers, we have to keep standing up, making sure that they hear us in Canberra, making sure that they hear us in the boardrooms, that when you go after workers, workers fight back. We want a government that respects our democracy. We want a government that respects our rights to stand together. We want a government that respects people and their jobs. And most importantly, we want a government that respects and acknowledges the role of the industrial movement, the union movement, to make sure that we all have good, good secure jobs that we can count on and that we go home at the end of the day. Stand strong, stand together and keep fighting. The workers united will never be defeated. The workers united will never be defeated. The workers united will never be defeated. Well, you can see why Lisa Chester was elected. <laughs> She's the uh, Labor member for uh, Bendigo and uh, them's fighting words. And someone told me that uh, in her uh, union days that they'd seen her, she's pint-sized, uh, but uh, a real cracker coming up to, you know, physically much bigger people, you know, saying, you know, shit-fronting them effectively in, in the best possible way to uh, fighting the good fight, which is what we all need to see and hear. It was pretty remarkable, Sally uh, McManus, who's now the new uh, secretary for the ACTU, appearing on Channel 7. Oh, no, sorry. <laughs> that, was a, that was a Freudian slip. On the ABC 7.30 report. Oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> she, uh, the lighting for Sally McManus on that program, it was like she was uh, an insect uh, on a... Uh, 
on um, a, uh, a board, you know, being pinned because the lighting was so extreme that uh, and so bright that it was uh, extraordinary. So she was sort of like a, a put into disadvantage in rela- relation to the way she looked on screen. But she was very forthright. She said, yes, she did say. She said uh, it, it, she used the example of Grocon that, killed five workers on their work site, got a fine a, a measly amount and uh, and uh, the uh, CFMU who were fined in the millions for uh, taking industrial action. And I don't know if people remember what that dispute was about. It was about the fact that Grocon wanted to appoint the uh, health and safety officer, which of course is contrary to the whole n- reason and uh, foundations of OH&S law. The uh, management can have their own people, but they can't. The whole point is to have a balance between the working people and uh, management when it comes to safety. So uh, there was every reason for why a stand had to be made. But, of course, that was what uh, Sally McManus was saying. If the uh, laws are unjust, then she had to uh, back this kind of action, which is quite interesting for someone to actually say it uh, as clearly as that. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. We're coming to we're coming to a uh, a point in history that uh, is going to define if you're uh, where we go in the future quite clearly. Uh, but the good fight always has to be fought, so it's about justice and uh, that's uh, and a livable future, a livable future. Uh, for everyone, not just for... I went to a thing last night where a homeless person stood up and said, uh, why is it that uh, all the good things are only for the rich? You know, why can't uh, people be safe? Why can't people be fed? Why can't people have a head, a shoulder, you know, a, a roof over the head? Why is it only for rich people? I mean, and it was a fairly stark uh, realization that this is we are really in uh, a time in history, another time in history, where a line has to be drawn in the sand. Because, as they say, it's not just the poor that this is about. This is about everybody, and uh, the future that we live in. Uh, and uh, before we go, I'll have to leave with the rousing speech by Paddy Crumlin on the same day, March the ninth. What a speaker! What a man! Uh, P- Paddy Crumlin is the uh, Secretary, National Secretary for the MUA. He's also the president of the uh, uh, International Transport Union. Uh, he uh, is a magnificent speaker. So I'll, uh, he, he was the person that was put up just before the march began in Melbourne. Uh, on th- before, you won't hear from me again. Coming up next is... Uh, uh, Asia Pacific Currents on the program today, which was all over the place, I'll have to say, because nothing happened the way I expected. We did hear from Trevor Grant. Trevor Grant died a couple of weeks ago. Fantastic person, fantastic journalist on the right side of history. He's going to have. There's going to be a memorial memorial for this great man uh, at 1 p.m. at uh, the Trades Hall today. There's uh, that Saturday. Uh, we then went on to uh, Feminism in the Pub, which was very interesting, I thought. We then talked to Anne Limont from uh, Fig Over Pensioners. We heard, finally heard from Kevin. I won't even tell you what happened there, but I'm sorry it was late, but there was a reason. And uh, now we heard from Lisa Chester, and we're going to now hear from Praddy Crumlin. 
Goodbye from me. It's hot and thirsty work out here, isn't it? We're going to make it hot and thirsty work for Malcolm Turnbull and all his bullshit supporters in Parliament, aren't we? See, this is a work. This is a war on workers. It's not a war on unions. It's a war on working men and women in their families. It's a war on workers that want to return home safely to their families at night. It's a war on workers that want to be home on a Saturday and a Sunday, and if they can't, they want to be properly remunerated for it. It's a war on working men and women. When they want the best possible representation they can get on the job. They want delegates that can represent them. They want to find their voice up against employer who couldn't give a flying what's-his-name about what they think. It's about working men and women in Australia that want to live an Australian life. That want to have respect. That want to have a say. That want to have penalty rates. It's a war on workers. And it's just not going to stop on the job. It's no accident that they're going after the hospitality workers at one end, and at the other end they're going after the biggest and the toughest unions in the country. And every Australian worker is going to get skewered in between unless we stand them up. It wasn't them that gave us the conditions. It wasn't them that won the occupational health and safety laws. It wasn't them that got the penalty rates or the superannuation rates. It wasn't them that got the sick leave. It wasn't them that secured public housing. It wasn't them that secured public medical care. It wasn't them that secured public education. It was the working men and women of Australia. And all this shit is about... Every war is based on lies. The war on workers is based on the fact that working men and women don't own their union. Well, we do own our union. We are our union. There is no union without workers, and they won't accept that. Well, we're going to show them. We represent the workers that are in unions or aren't in unions. We represent the workers that won those penalty rates. We, work, we represent those unions and those workers that went out there and made sure through strike action out of the granite of opposition by people like Malcolm Turnbull developed an Australia we all want to live in. Developed an Australia, an Akadaka Australia. An Australia where you don't have to go to the top and you've got to rock and roll. And we're going to fight for that Australia. We are that Australia. Those parliamentarians that are siding with them for their own opportunity, for their own personal interests, will be wiped out. We're not here for a political party. We're here for working men and women. I'm the president of the ITF. International transport workers. The ABCC is reaching out into the hydrocarbon industry, into shipping. To do what? To replace Australian seafarers with an exploited and international workforce with no rights. To give Chevron and give the big multinationals the right to rip us off 
for our own gas, our own oil, our own construction. They stand for a country that is owned by a few and not the many. They stand for a country of the rich and not the poor. They stand for a country of just the healthy and not the sick. Well, we don't. We're Australians. We're going to stand forward to the country we built, we maintain, and we and our families want to live in. So let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Stand up, fight back. Brothers and sisters. Well, I love the Lone Ranger. I love that Dennis Law. Him and George Best. I sure knew how to kick a ball. I wanted to be a cowboy and learn to crack a whip. Stand up in that lonely street six guns on my hip. Along the mighty Beatles came, and everywhere went, ah! They could play and sing and everything, and of course that John could draw. Well, that was it for me. I never once looked back. And tricks to learn and waves to catch. I had a plan of attack. South, where the surf came crashing in, from black and white to colour, from innocence to sin. It was summer in December, blowing heat waves in my mind. People talking funny, some cruel and some were kind. From the crackle of the cane to the frown of a big black snake, from the breakers at Bondi and down to Wallaga Lake. From the sound of a million fly screen doors closing on the past, like that chimney the fires couldn't burn, I was built to last. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.